the information presented in this podcast is of a general nature and is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should never be used as a substitute for mental care, medical care, prevention, diagnosis, counseling, treatment, or other services. Always consult a mental health professional before engaging in any activities discussed in this podcast. Thank you for listening. Have you ever wished for magical powers? Do you still await your Hogwarts acceptance letter? Well, welcome to Hogwarts. You are magical. And this is your invitation to join us in exploring the psychology behind the most magical series, Harry Potter. Welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Hello, you magical people, and thank you for tuning in to Harry Potter Therapy. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. I am a musician, filmmaker, and all-around fanboy. And I am Dr. Janina Scarlett. I'm a clinical psychologist, author, and a full-time witch. So today we are going to be looking at Chapter 6, The Journey from Platform 9 and 3 Quarters. Joining us today is special guest Dr. Louise Freeman, a professor of psychology and an expert in neuroscience and a Harry Potter scholar. Dr. Freeman, welcome to Harry Potter Therapy. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, we hope so. It's very magical. <laughs> in this chapter, we are going to explore Harry's first trip to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In the month leading to his departure to Hogwarts, Harry's family doesn't speak to him. Then the day before he has to leave for King's Cross Station, his uncle makes fun of him, first for taking the train to school as opposed to a magic carpet or something, and then for taking the train at platform nine and three quarters, which he does not believe exists. He agrees to take Harry seemingly just to poke fun at him. Where does this level of animosity come from? This is Uncle Vernon we're talking about, uh, uh, who is pretty much never anything but nasty to Harry. As we progress through the books, both Aunt Petunia and Dudley show some moments of humanness, but Uncle Vernon never does. That is the role he plays in the series. I think it's interesting here. I don't know if you've ever on this program before talked about parenting styles. Yes, we have. The Dursleys are all three bad ones rolled into one. I mean, they have this very indulgent attitude toward Dudley. You know, up to now, they've been very authoritarian with Harry, with all the bullying and stuff like this. And now it seems now that he's found out his background and he's going off to Hogwarts, they ignore him. So they start with the extreme negligence. I think it's interesting that they're kind of completing their circle now and just in terms of every bad thing you can do as foster mm -hmm. parents. And I think Uncle Vernon's attitude is about what we've come to expect from him, unfortunately. Absolutely. You mentioned that he exhibits this kind of bullying behavior, and I completely agree with that. I think that the Dursley family, especially Uncle Vernon, 
really seem to lack in empathy. That most individuals would be empathic toward their nephew, who is probably terrified going to a new school, not knowing how to get there. They would probably take their eleven-year-old without even asking. They wouldn't wait for their nephew to ask them to take them to the train that they need to take to school. They would maybe even show them how to get there, make sure that they got there safely. The Dursleys seem to be incapable of this level of empathy. Uncle Vernon, especially, doesn't seem to be a very empathic kind of guy, although he's capable of understanding of how other people might react, as we see in the first chapter, where he knows that bringing up Harry's name or Lily's name will upset his wife, Petunia. He doesn't seem to have that next step where he's able to put himself into the other person's shoes and understand the pain that they might be going through. He certainly seems to be lacking that with Harry, and I think it's this lack of empathy that makes him such an awful uncle toward Harry. You know, I was reminded when I was rereading the chapter that the reason he goes to London, of course, is he has to take Dudley to the hospital to have the pig's tail removed. So he has had this month-long reminder of this very cruel thing, in many ways, that Hagrid did to Dudley, and he did this basically to punish Uncle Vernon. You can understand at this point that they are also feeling a lot of fear because they've always known that this magical world is potentially dangerous. You know, they've had this kid living with a pig's tail for a month now. You can only imagine how Dudley has been acting for a month, walking around with a pig's tail. He's probably screaming and crying about it every day. Yeah, I bet <laughs> it's hard to sit down. Yeah. That is, I guess, the one reason you might expect animosity, hostility, fear at this They've seen that this is real now, that the magical community is coming back. They know that they see everything they do to Harry. They know where he sleeps. They know when they're traveling. They can track them anywhere. There certainly is a level of fear that is, in some sense, justified in this yeah, case. Yeah, very valid. I see that, too. We were just discussing empathy, and I thought it was interesting that Harry never received any communication about how to board the train or anything like that. They didn't really recognize that he was raised in a non-magical environment. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me, sir. Can you tell me where I might find platform nine and three quarters? Nine and three quarters? Think you're being funny, do you? By being raised in a non-magical household, what does this suggest about some potential disadvantages that children raised in minority families might go through? They just seem to assume that this is common knowledge, how to find platform nine and three quarters. The fact that Harry does not know, that is what, of course, opens the door to his first interaction with the Weasleys, which, of course, is a huge starting point in the book in terms of that relationship and his first contact, really, with a strong family and seeing really what a strong family looks like. The same every year, packed with muggles, of course. Come on, back from nine and three quarters this way. All right, Percy, you first. You next. Hey, 
it's not Fred I am. Honestly, woman, you call yourself our mother. Oh, I'm sorry, George. I'm only joking. I am Fred. Excuse me. Could, could you tell me how to... How to get onto the platform? <laughs> Not to worry, dear. It's Ron's first time to Hogwarts as well. Now, all you've got to do is walk straight at the wall between platforms 9 and 10. Best do it at a bit of a run if you're nervous. Good luck. It's been a lot of years, to be honest, since I picked up the Sorcerer's Stone book and reread it. And a few things just struck me as strange, like Molly Weasley asking, what is the number of that platform again? As if she hadn't been doing this for, <laughs> what, how many, seven years at least? You know, she's had two kids graduate from school. As far as we know, there's only one wizarding platform in existence. Of course, it was very convenient that she happens to repeat nine and three quarters and Harry hears it and makes contact with them and gets that assistance. What's also interesting is that we don't know how Hermione got there. Did someone tell her parents? Did her parents take her to the platform? Since we don't meet her until she's on the train. She probably read it somewhere. <laughs> probably in Hogwarts of uh, History. Hogwarts of History, possibly. It's sort of interesting that she just shows up as this muggle-born kid with no more knowledge about the wizarding world really than Harry had, yet apparently has made it on there, has tried spells, has gotten her robes on, and is jumping into this new world with a lot of confidence that Harry lacks. Whether that, you know, is the supportive home that she comes from, as in contrast to Harry, or just her inquisitive nature. One of my favorite parts in the entire book is Harry's first meeting with the Weasley family and how helpful and loving and welcoming Molly Weasley is. And of course, uh, we can see already that she has the potential to become the mother that Harry has never found in Aunt Petunia. Absolutely. Sure. I always wondered if muggle-born children like Hermione perhaps received a different set of instructions in terms of how to get to Diagon Alley to buy their supplies and how to get to the platform nine and three quarters. And perhaps because Harry was born to magical parents, maybe the assumption was that he would already know these things. I'm wondering if there was kind of an automatic dissemination of different kinds of letters to muggle-borns as opposed to children like Harry who were born to magical parents. When I was reading this, this actually made me think of the way that immigrant children sometimes might go to school. As an immigrant child myself, I remember my first day going to junior high school for the first time in a different country, in a place where I didn't speak the language in a place where I didn't know where to go. And like Harry, I didn't have the instructions. 
all I had was a rough location of where the school was. And of course, I ended up going to the wrong entrance and kind of fumbling my way around to try to figure out what's going on. And thankfully ran into a very helpful individual. In this case, it was my school principal. But like Molly Weasley, he took me under his wing and showed me <laughs> to my classroom and was very supportive and very helpful. So I think that interactions like these can be really helpful, as we see in Harry's case, in making friends very quickly when we don't know what's going on and what to expect. And then somebody who is a little bit more prepared and a little bit more knowledgeable can be helpful. From the moment we meet the Weasleys, like you guys were mentioning, we can see how generous and kind they are. Like Miss Weasley immediately takes Harry under her wing and helps him get onto the platform. The twins, Fred and George, also help him with heaving his trunk onto the train without expecting anything in return. Even though the Weasleys have a lot of children and are not financially well off, they seem far more generous than the Malfoy family and the Dursleys. Why do you think this is? I think because the Weasleys understand poverty, I think they're also more generous in giving. I think that sometimes when we ourselves have experienced something difficult, we can empathize with other people. Molly naturally has this mama bear kind of mentality and core value and in supporting her own children and, and seeing her own children struggle sometimes, she is also more willing to take on other children. Whereas I imagine for the Malfoys, whom we don't really see in this chapter, we don't see the parents of Draco in this chapter, I imagine having just the one very well-off family might act differently. And so it seems that the Weasleys might not have a lot of money per se, but they have a lot of love. And because of the love and compassion and, and their genuine nature, I think they're actually the richest family that we meet hmm. in, in the magical hmm. realm. Well, also, they don't have the bigotry. I mean, both of the Dursleys and the Malfoys have this prejudice. The Malfoys are the pure-blood supremacists. The Dursleys are the anti-magic everything. We see that although the Weasleys are a pure-blood family, they are not hung up over it. It doesn't matter to them. We see Mr. Weasley's fascination with muggles. He has this very intense interest in the muggle world and how it works and this curiosity about them. He doesn't have this anti-muggle sentiment we see in so many of the other pure-blood families. I think that just is part of their whole compassion and empathic nature. Absolutely. During the train ride, we see the heartwarming beginning of Harry and Ron's lifelong friendship. Excuse me. Do you mind? Everywhere else is full. Not at all. I'm Ron, by the way. Ron Weasley. I'm Harry. Harry Potter. So, so it's true. I mean, do you really have the... the... The what? Scar. Oh. Yeah. Wicked. Why do you think they get along so easily, these two? They complement each other in so many ways. You've got Harry as this very alone child who has no family, and the family that he does have is a horrible one who he is completely alienated for. We have Ron, who is surrounded by this huge family. Harry would love to have all these siblings. Ron, of course, feels that that puts a pressure on him, that he's overlooked being the youngest brother. 
as he says, pressure to do well, but when he does well, it's never noticed because someone else has already done it first and living with the hand-me-downs. They make that connection. You know, Harry tells Ron about he's stuck with all of Dudley's hand-me-downs. Even though he now knows he's famous and now knows he's wealthy, he's never lived like that before. So I think they can make that connection both because of the elements of their background that they share, the hand-me-downs, the overlooked, ignored child, but also in the ways that they're different. You know, one's wealthy and famous, one is kind of poor. That puts them together in a very special way. Just the fact that Harry finally has someone he can share with, buying all the candy and being able to buy whatever he wants, being able to eat whatever he wants. Anything off the trolley, dears? We'll take the lot. And having someone to share it with. I think that is just got to be just this wonderfully defining moment for him that, wow, I'm really out of privet drive. You know, I think the line is in there. This is whatever is ahead of me. It's got to be better than what I've left behind. Absolutely. I think when you've shared every flavor beans with somebody, that's an ultimate bonding experience. Bertie bought every flavor beans. They mean every flavor. There's chocolate and peppermint, and there's also spinach, liver, and tripe. George sweared he got a bogey-flavored one once. The two of them seem to really complement each other, as you mentioned, in that I think they seem to really be able to support each other about each other's insecurities in a really kind, caring, and compassionate way. When Harry realizes that Ron is embarrassed about not being able to afford an owl, he completely understands what that feeling is like, and he lets Ron save face, he doesn't bring it up, and then when he realizes that Ron can't afford candy, then he buys the lot and shares it with Ron in being able to share those kind Mm -hmm. of experiences certainly allow the boys to bond. And furthermore, because Harry is insecure about not knowing what the magical world is like and not knowing what Quidditch is and not knowing what different houses are, Ron, without judging him, actually just readily fills him in. So the two of them seem to be able to, in a very friendly, very caring kind of way, support each other through the very insecurities that they each face and encourage each other. So Ron actually tells Harry that he'll fit right in. I think that in doing so, in being kind to one another, they're able to start the road of their friendship. Ron feels impoverished but he i think has to see in this trip that he has two things that are incredibly valuable he has this knowledge of the wizarding world that harry does not have so he starts sharing that what we know eventually is that he's going to share his entire family his mom is going to start sending harry christmas sweaters and all that type of stuff that family that ron does not treasure right now is something that harry very much will come to treasure In this chapter, we also first meet Hermione. She's helping Neville look for a toad, and she also criticizes Ron's spellmanship. Has anyone seen a toad? A boy named Neville's lost one. Mom? Oh, are you doing magic? Let's see then. Sunshine, daisies, buttermellow. Turn this stupid fat rat yellow. sure that's a real spell? Well, it's not very good, is it? 
Of course, I've only tried a few simple ones myself, but they've all worked for me. For example, Oculus Reparo. She's clearly read all the books ahead of school and even got a few extra ones for background reading. She initially comes across as bossy and the boys seem annoyed with her. Holy cricket! You're Harry Potter! I'm Hermione Granger. And you are? Um, Ron Weasley. Pleasure. You two better change into robes. I expect we'll be arriving soon. You've got dirt on your nose, by the way. Did you know? Just there. Why do you think Hermione comes across that way, and why is she acting this way, just in general? It's likely that Hermione is probably pretty insecure about going to this new world. She's muggle-born. I don't know if she's ever met anyone who is magical, but it doesn't seem like it prior to perhaps going to Diagon Alley. I think that she is probably trying very, very hard to fit in. We don't actually know much about Hermione's past prior to her going to Hogwarts. I don't know if she's ever been bullied, but it seems to me as if she is perhaps using one of her strengths, which is her intellect, to try to fit in, to try to make a good impression. Of course, sometimes that backfires because I think she overdoes it and she might come across as condescending. I don't necessarily think that's her intention, but I think this is her desperately trying to make it look like she fits in, to make friends and be a part of this magical community that she might be scared of getting kicked out of. Well, it's understandable that being from her background, she has something to prove that she belongs there. We don't know much about her. I think we have to assume she's grown up in a muggle home. She's presumably gone to some sort of elementary school, public school, maybe a private school. I can't imagine that she was anything other than the top student in her class and the teacher's pet and the one with always her hand up, you know, the same way she starts off Hogwarts. She definitely knows her strength is schoolwork and reading and books and understanding and cleverness and all that type of stuff. She's definitely relying on that to get her into this new world and get her adjusted to it, which you know has to be pretty frightening for her. The other thing that struck me when I was reading this that I hadn't picked up on before is that both times when she comes by the carriage, she's helping Neville look for his toad. This is also the mm-hmm. first time we meet Neville literally the toad loser. I mean, in the previous (laughs) chapter, Hagrid had told Harry, no, 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 you don't want a toad. Everyone's going to make fun of you if you show up with a toad. Well, Neville has not only shown up with a toad, he has lost his toad (laughs) and is running all of the train looking for it. He's already starting off as being the laughingstock and the laughingstock that he is for the first few books. But Hermione is reaching out to him and trying to help him. And I think that says a lot about her character, even with this kind of know-it-all persona that she takes on first, that there is that underlying kindness, there's that underlying looking out for the underdog. We'll see that later in her advocacy for house elves and everything. I thought it was interesting that the first thing we actually see her doing, as opposed to talking about, is helping Neville find his toad. I love Hermione. She's one of my favorites. Mine too. At the end of this chapter, when Draco learns about Harry's true identity, he seems a lot more interested in him compared to when he first met him at Madame Malkin's in Diagon Alley. He insults Ron and tells Harry that some wizarding families are much better than others. 
Harry, however, refuses to be Malfoy's friend, choosing Ron over Draco. What are some of the mechanisms of behavior that we're seeing here? Well, we're definitely seeing bullying, intimidation, and prejudice. We're seeing some racist and classist behavior where Draco insults Ron specifically due to his heritage. He insults Ron based on how much his family earns and appears to be using threats, actually quite outwardly, to tell Harry to watch out. I think that this is a, a beginning of the kind of behavior that can, in some cases, turn really violent and can turn into some pretty severe bullying. You notice he only does this when he has Crab and Goyle standing behind him. He doesn't take them on on his own. He has to have his henchmen to yes, defend him. Absolutely. And there appears to be this kind of a crowd effect, right, where we're more likely to have a more extreme behavior when we are surrounded by people than when we are by ourselves. In addition, sometimes when there's a crowd of people and some kind of a fight is going on, some people are less likely to jump in to help somebody than when there's fewer people. We call that the bystander effect. In this case, Harry actually doesn't follow the bystander effect rules. He jumps in and he stands up for Ron and he stands up to Draco, whom he doesn't seem to be afraid of, even though Draco is with his essentially bodyguards. I think that was a really heroic display of courage and Harry standing up for what he believes in. That's great. Well, you know, he didn't like Malfoy from day one. He thought he reminded him of Dudley. And, you know, he's had experience dealing with bullies. He's experienced dealing with Dudley. He was smart enough. He could usually verbally get Dudley back, even if he couldn't fight back physically. Well, as we can see, Harry's journey to Hogwarts is already off to an interesting start. So tune in next time as we explore the psychology behind the sorting ceremony. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for being on our show, Dr. Freeman. Can you please tell our audience where they can find you on social media? Sure. I'm a professor at Mary Baldwin University in Stanton, Virginia. I write regularly for HogwartsProfessor.com, so you can find some of my work there on Harry Potter and other young adult series and psychological themes within them there. I also do academic programming coordination for the Queen City Mischief and Magic Festival, which is a big magical festival in Stanton that is the last weekend of September. So if you're in the area, come by and check us out there. Well, thank you again so much. If you're interested in learning more about Harry Potter therapy, please check out Dr. Scarlett's book, Harry Potter Therapy, an unauthorized self-help book from the restricted section. I am your host, Dustin McGinnis. You can find me on Twitter at The Valiant Geek. And I'm Dr. Janina Scarlett. You can find me on Twitter under at Shadow Quill. Thank you all so much for listening and have a magical day.